0: Hello friends, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Mark Manson. He's an author and blogger, and we are talking 11 uncomfortable truths about life. Mark is the king of telling people things they don't want to hear, but probably need to hear. I couldn't bring him on without using this as an opportunity to dig out some of his most insightful and painful lessons about life. So here we go. Hold on tight. Expect to learn why almost nothing is ever about you why there's a fundamental selfishness attached to anxiety, how Mark transitioned from party boy to fatherhood, why you're probably the problem in all your relationships, why contrarians aren't as smart as they think, and much more. On top of that, Mark's also just announced that he is releasing a book with Will Smith, of all people, The Fresh Prince, and you get to find out what it's like to work with Will Smith for a couple of years, which, to be frank, sounds like perhaps the best job in history. On top of that, Mark sold 15 million books and that he's completely worthy of the success as far as I can see. His insights into human behavior and the way that our minds work and how we engage with other people, is he cuts through and does a lot of sense-making. So I really hope that you enjoy this episode. And if you do hit the subscribe button. It's the only way that you can ensure that you will never miss an episode every Monday, Thursday, and Saturday when they get uploaded. It supports the show. It makes me very happy that you have no reason not to do it. Take your fingers for a walk, please, and just make sure that subscribe button is pressed. I thank you. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash modern right now. That's netsuite.com slash modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've won Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely absolutely everything Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, it's time to learn some uncomfortable life truths with Mark Manson. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back. I'm joined by Mr. Mark Manson. Welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, man. So you are as much of a fan of truth bombs and red pills and uncomfortable insights as I am. So what I've done is I've scraped your social media from the last few months and pulled out some of the best ones and I've kept some absolute corkers for the end. But before we get into going through those, you're writing a book with Will Smith. Are you producing releasing a book with Will Smith?
1: Yeah, so I mean my part's kind of over. Um but yeah, he he and I linked up in twenty eighteen. He wanted to write uh kind of a memoir slash life lessons kind of from his career and his life. Uh and he was looking for a co author. And so he and I just hit it off, had good chemistry, um, and it was I was, I, you know, I was a little bit hesitant at first, you know, I was like, I I don't want to do this just because it's a celebrity, you know, I don't want to be part of like a PR puff piece. Um, You know, it needs to be real. It needs to be raw. Like there needs to be a good reason behind it. And when I met him for the first time and I asked him why he wanted to do a book, the first thing he said is he said, look, like my whole career, I've been like hiding myself, um you know as a as a as a huge celebrity like you hide yourself from the world you like everything is polished and pristine and kind of catered for the viewer um he was like i want i want to put the real me out there and um i was like fuck yeah dude i'm on
0: board (laughs) what's it like working with will smith
1: honestly man he is uh he's a dream like he and i've heard this is not the case with a lot of famous people but he is honestly one of the easiest people to work with he's really professional he's super nice um very smart very down the earth uh we honestly like we just had a blast like we just we just hung out he took me to all these crazy fucking places that he was going to and uh and we just sit around and like talk about his life and talk about his ideas and it it was easy for me cuz i just i just sat there and listened and then i got i like basically just pick out like his greatest hits you know like like oh that that's a really good one we'll use that you know and um so that was it you know and then i did the first draft and that and he's done the uh he kind of did a revision of that oh, draft oh that's cool so
0: you you sort of ghost wrote it and he edited his own work kind kind of
1: yeah like we did the outline together and and kind of came up like agreed on the structure and then i i did that the first draft which is generally more agonizing draft (laughs) 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 um and uh and then yeah and then he kind of revised his voice onto it and added little details and you know style stylistic things and stuff like that so uh It's great. I'm super excited. I'm excited for him. Um, I'm excited for me. Like it's, it's a really cool book
0: and, um, uh, I'm proud of it. So it comes out November 9th. That's sick, man. Pre-order link will be, I'll make sure the pre-order links in the show notes below. Um, yeah, I, I think more sort of heroes of Hollywood, you know, obviously McConaughey released his green lights this year and that's absolutely smashed it and kind of added value it wasn't just a as you said this sort of puff piece about i'm a rich famous person you should find out about my life like it's actually adding genuine yeah. value and yeah i, I mean I'd, I'd learn shit from will smith i feel like i've got stuff yeah. to learn from him
1: i i he's got a lot to share man did he impact um, did I, he,
0: given the fact that you've sort of learned a lot about this world sense making and kind of understanding the way that the world works did he impart sort of lessons or change your worldview profoundly at all
1: he was very impactful on me in in kind of a slightly different way. I mean, I'll I'll say this, when I met him and he really started sharing his story, like his childhood and growing up in West Philly and you know, like being a rapper in the in the 80s, like it I quickly realized that this is one of the most emotionally resilient people I've ever met. Like the the stuff that he went through um and and not only like went through it but surmounted it and then came out the other side like a a positive healthy person um it's just incredible like it's it's a real there's a real kind of survivorship aspect to his story that i think most people don't know about him like people don't realize that um and so that really excited me from kind of a writing standpoint and you know being in the personal development world like that's you know, we kind of like live and breathe stories like that. Um, So I'm super excited about that. But in terms of like how he affected me personally, actually most of what I learned from him was very much kind of like professional based, you know, like um, seeing the way he built his team and the way he thinks about, you know, creative projects or collaborating with people, seeing the way he deals with his fans, kind of just hearing his ideas of like, on just, you know, being famous or being a thought leader or being somebody who people like being a role model. Um, you know, this is a guy who's done that at the highest level for 30 years now. And so for me, you know, I'm still a fairly young guy. My career just kind of took off four or five years ago. Um, it was like a masterclass of just, you know, how to like be a professional in a creative industry and, um, and how to like handle success well and maintain success and and work with people it, it was great
0: that really is pretty invaluable right because as you get further and further up the totem pole of success and away from the normal distribution of normal right there's yeah. like, who the fuck's teaching mark manson how to deal with fame you know like the guy that <laughs> the guy that sold 13 million books like who's who's the one that's like oh yeah i'm five steps ahead of you mate like you know hold on to the coattails good luck. But there's a very, yeah. very small number of people that can do that, and I think um, I heard recently Rogan had a reverse interview with uh, I can't remember the pair. They're really good podcasters, actually. They sat him down in his own studio and and interviewed him, and you find out he he has the same challenges. And you're, you're talking about probably perhaps the most influential person in America, one of, yeah. And he's like, I've got a fucking clue what I'm doing. He doesn't even have a PA like you just realize (laughs) everyone and again that's that's quite an interesting thing or a humbling thing for normal people normal to realize right that look the people that you care about and think have got it all sorted out they're just fucking about as well like they haven't got a clue no (laughs) one's got a clue like if will smith's like the if you have to get to will smith's level to have your shit sorted there's no hope for any of us
1: well and it's funny too because it's you know at this point i've spent three years around him and his team and i, I mean i love his the people on his team. he's got great people who work for him and and i i really like them but it, it's funny because i mean they have the exact same challenges of like any business organization that you would ever come with. you know it's like the same kind of bullshit and miscommunication <laughs> and like you know like <laughs> egos bumping into each other and stuff and it's haven't got it's, the designs
0: um, done on time and too many emails and can somebody set such and such up with the SSN3P server and all that bullshit
1: exactly exactly you know it's funny i've got a i've got a friend here in new york who's kind of he's uh he's pretty high up in the the vc world here and um and he kind of he just had like kind of a stratospheric rise in in his career in the last 5 years as well and I remember I was talking to him. So suddenly he's taking meetings with like high level people that, you know, he's getting invited out to like, you know, meet with CEOs of fortune 500 companies and, you know, being brought on like as a consultant, you know, cause it's like this huge company is thinking about doing an internal incubator for a bunch of startups within and they, they need advice on like what's the best way to go about it. So he's like meeting all these like CEOs and, billionaires and stuff and i remember i was having dinner with him and he was like yeah i just i think i realized you know i always just thought like if i just go one rung higher like everybody's gonna know what they're doing and now i'm like at the top of the ladder and it's just it's morons all the way down (laughs) (laughs) it's like nobody has a clue man it's like it's it's the difference between the top and you know maybe like you know slightly above average is maybe you're like you have five percent more of a clue you know that's probably it
0: (laughs) fuck well i mean i've been thinking about this a lot recently how many times do you have to disprove your own imposter syndrome with success in the real world before it fucks off for good like what's the nail in the coffin of that is it 14 million books? is it 15 million books? Is it like oh, I'm not there yet I'm 17 set <laughs> like 7 million email subscribers like 8 million like where does it stop
1: yeah I mean I if there's if there's ever a number that uh brings total confidence <laughs> I have not found it yet <laughs> and it's you know what and it's funny too because I, I you know I've still I think I've got my imposter syndrome's gotten a little bit better um you know, I I I think anytime you have a sudden burst of success, you know, imposter syndrome is probably like a normal, healthy reaction because there's a little bit of like a whoa, what the fuck, what did I do to deserve this? You know, like that. That's kind of a natural, and then you start settling into it, and realize um, that that you know you worked pretty hard and you you did something great. Um, but like, I still have some of it. But it's funny, I feel like part of me is a little bit afraid to let go. Because I feel like if I if I let go and I'm like, yeah, I'm Mark fucking Manson. My books <laughs> like crush it. You know, as soon as I if I let myself fall into that, then I, I, I just feel like it's going to backfire so hard. So it's almost like um, it's almost like there's like an optimal amount of insecurity. Yeah. Um. People use, you know, let's say people, people it's use like a little is better than none, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would I, I would say that that's. Not a bad way to look at it. People use uh, imposter syndrome as a proxy for humbleness sometimes, um, because yeah. it actually manifests in a really sort of similar way. Um, and if it kind of constrains your ego, perhaps the if the outcome is worthy, perhaps that's a way to look at it. Seth Godin said to me that um, if you're doing something that you've never done before or that maybe no one's ever done before, of course you've got imposter syndrome. Why wouldn't you? By definition – You're breaking new ground. You're in an area of the terrain that you haven't yet, you haven't yet explored.
1: Yeah, and and I think there's also there's kind of like um, I don't know, like a more philosophical element to it too. You know, it's I know so many smart authors who work so fucking hard and like they write great books, and and so there's a little bit of like a why me, like you know, kind of like
0: survivorship guilt type thing.
1: Yeah, almost like it's, it's like, like, I think my, my books are good, but they're not like, you know, 50 X better than like this other guy, you know, but so why do I get 50 X the result? Like that doesn't, there's something that just seems like strange about that. Um, so yeah, it, it's weird. It's a weird thing.
0: Right. Okay. Uncomfortable truths. First one, you don't attract shit into your life and it's not the universe's fault you probably just suck at boundaries.
1: <laughs> um, that's a good one. I like that one.
0: <laughs> I really do as well. But I don't talk about... So here's the thing, man. I don't really talk about boundaries that much. It's never really been yeah. one of those terms that I have brought into my lexicon of normal daily sense-making use. So what are you talking about? What sort sure. of boundaries?
1: So in terms of boundaries, um, I mean, in terms of, I usually use them in in relation to relationships. Um, but it's, it's basically like understanding what you will and will not tolerate in your life. And, um, and I think a lot of people kind of get, you know, the stuff that I mentioned there, you know, believing the universe is giving you something and blah, blah, blah. Like, a lot of these ideas about like law of attraction or whatever, they kind of get close to that. You know, law of attraction tells you like, you know, whatever you think about, that's what you like manifest in your reality. Well, it's more like your expectations tend to partially dictate your behavior and then your behavior is going to partially dictate your reality. And, um, and so if you're expecting to get screwed over all the time, then, uh, you're going to behave in such a way in in which you kind of invite it into your life. And, and where, and where this is just fundamentally a boundary issue is that if you, if you simply decide like, you know, I, I will not accept dishonesty in my life and I'm going to like enforce that boundary by like actually eliminating people who are dishonest from being around me. Um, you know, like that's actually a healthy way to manage your life. It has nothing to do with the universe. It has nothing to do with like laws of attraction or vibrations or energy or whatever. It's like it's simply making a decision. It's deciding like this is something I don't want in my life, so I'm not going to allow it. Um, and it's it's like it's such a simple concept, but we we struggle so much with it. Like it, it's a very it's one of those things that it's very easy to understand, but incredibly difficult to um actually like enforce
0: well unless you've taken the full non-dual enlightenment red pill and you're walking around part of the the substrate of the world you find you feel like an actor right you feel like an agent that has thoughts and very much is the center of the universe like it because you are everything emanates out and comes toward you even the light you know the sun doesn't shine anywhere except for on you as far as you're concerned And um yeah, I think as well. Think about how the reticular act- activating system works. Like, if you tell someone, as soon as you buy a new car, you always notice that new car everywhere. Everyone's got this car. No, you're just looking out for it. And the same goes yep. with this. Like, if you prime someone, this is what guys like Darren Brown and these other sort of quasi illusionist mind mental melding people do, right? They just prime people and then they put them into a situation, and the brain does the rest. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it's it's our. Our perceptions are highly inaccurate, and they're very much uh, they're very much affected by the nature of our thoughts. And um, you don't need a magical explanation for that; they're like very logical, scientific explanations for that. Um, but it's you know, I think what what matters is that people adapt their behavior to it ultimately.
0: Next one: stop taking things personally. It's rarely about you. Yeah, I, I think this is this kind of
1: harks back to what you just said about uh everybody's the center of their own universe, you know, like we all, we all experience everything through the lens of our, of our own physical experience. And so it's, it's kind of our default, you know, David Foster Wallace has this great passage in his speech, This is Water, where he, he talks about like everything that we experience, it's happening, it's experienced like relative to us, you know, it's impossible to experience something as somebody else. And so our default setting psychologically is to assume that until proven otherwise everything involves us where this is just like a highly inaccurate assumption and um and i it's just something that i've always i've found helpful throughout my life um especially you know it's something i really realized back when i was young and i was dating you know like i i'd go to a party or something and start chatting with a girl and she'd kind of blow me off And, you know, the natural reaction is to just assume, like, wow, I'm such a loser. Like, if I was a cool guy, like, every girl would just immediately want to go home with me. And it's like, no, man, like, you don't know what she's going through. You don't know where she is in her life. Like, maybe she just got dumped. Maybe she's seen somebody else. Maybe she's leaving town tomorrow and never coming back. Like, you know, it's not only do you not know, but it's also none of your fucking business. Like, it's not. (laughs) It's like get get out of your own ass and, and uh, you know, empathize a little bit.
0: Well, we'd never claim that for ourselves, right? If somebody said, why did you cut me up in traffic? You'd say, oh, well, I was late for this thing or I'd do whatever. But when it's someone else, the fundamental attribution error kicks in and you think, yeah, that yep. guy that guy did it because he's a prick, but I did it. Yep. I did it because I'm late for work and they should understand.
1: Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's like when you when you reject somebody, it's like, you know, you're thinking you're like, oh, I just don't really have time, to, like meet somebody new right now. But when they reject, it's like, oh, I'm such an idiot. I'm a loser. <laughs> yeah, <it's> such a- <laughs> She's a bitch. She's so selfish.
0: <laughs> yeah, it really is always about you. Right, man. This is I really enjoy this one. So you can't get far alone. And another one, if you think it's you against the world, chances are it's just you against yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think
1: um, one thing I, – I think – look, look like the world's an incredibly complicated place, and I talk about this in my book, Everything is Fucked, is that like <laughs> the world is – sure, the world's fucked, but the world's always been fucked, and it's always going to be fucked. Like there's no – pick a place in history where things were, were okay. Like there's literally not a single moment in history that things were okay. <laughs> and and so it's just, I, I think just conflict and strife and corruption, like these are just natural states of human society. And and I, I've just found through the years and through experience and, and talking to a lot of people that um, generally like the more zealous a person is about some sort of like, global cause about saving the world and uh you know ridding the world of evil um usually the the more fucked up that person is themselves you know like the the more dysfunctional their own life is the more dysfunctional their own relationships more you know the more dysfunctional their own uh you know ability to accomplish goals or or get something done like there seems to me to be like a one-to-one relationship between those two things Um, so I I just think it's we tend to like when you become comfortable with your own flaws and shortcomings you tend to be more comfortable with the world's flaws and shortcomings
0: and what about not being able to get far alone obviously as a guy that was quite self-sufficient dating and that sort of early life and stuff like that what what happened there how did you make that kind of pivot um I just found that you know wherever you get
1: alone it doesn't it's it feels kind of meaningless Um, for some reason, you know, and I think there's probably an evolutionary explanation for this, but it's accomplishments, isolated accomplishments um, feel very superficial, whereas like group accomplishments feel very profound and meaningful. You know, it feels much more powerful to do something as a team or to do something for a family or, to do something for your, your partner, uh, than it does to just, you know, collect accolades for yourself.
0: I had Jordan Peterson on the show and we talked about how to deal with the pain of losing friends. As you get older, you grow, people drop away, the ones that were part of your life. And, um, it really struck me some of the comments from people. And I think this perhaps skews just because YouTube generally, um, invites a, type of audience that's maybe a little bit more introspective and, and and doing that kind of self-inquiry and perhaps is used to solitude in any case. But I was really surprised at how many people were um, not bitter, but were a, a little resentful at the world and were kind of saying, I don't need anybody. I can make it on my own. Friends just slow me down. Uh, a, lot, a lot of sort of bits and pieces of feedback like this. And I thought... Hmm. That's interesting because these people have come because they know my, my content uh, and Jordan's as well. Mm. And I don't. I don't think that either of us have really pushed that sort of a rhetoric. If anything, I've both of us have said, "Try as hard as you can to find relationships that make you feel good." And this is something that's interesting, where people like to talk about leaning into discomfort and finding the struggle and overcoming obstacles and stuff like that. But those are only within quite a narrowly defined domain. <laughs> it's like. I'll deal with sure. the struggles, but I'll deal with them in the gym or I'll deal with them in business or I'll deal with them financially or I'll deal with them existentially or whatever it might be. And then you pull people outside of that and it seems like it correlates. Or there is a um, significant minority of people for whom one of the areas of discomfort that perhaps they're less comfortable with being uncomfortable in is building relationships and yeah. so on.
1: Yeah, it's. Um, I used to be like that. And, um, I just found it was funny because it, it you know, like I just said, it's like the more, the further I did get by myself, the more pointless it seemed, and, um, and the more I started to, you know, kind of lament my my isolation, my social isolation, and, I, I you know, one of my biggest discoveries in my adult life is what you just said about like taking that same willingness to lean into discomfort in other areas of my life to to sacrifice and make commitments for my business you know the sacrifice make commitments for my health or for my writing like apply that to to personal relationships like sacrifice and make commitments to to my friends to my wife um to my kids if i have them like and as soon as i stepped into that it's like the most meaningful and profound thing you can have <laughs> like it makes everything else seem very trivial very quickly Um, but it's hard to explain that to people. And I think a lot of people who are in that place, they're probably like me where they've, you know, their history, like I had never really had like a healthy, close relationship with somebody and until my probably late twenties. Um, you know, my family was quite dysfunctional. A lot of my friendships had let me down. Um, my early relationships were very toxic and dysfunctional. Um, so it's, it's something that you can't really see until you get there. But, and it's so it's hard to describe to people who aren't there, but um, it's, I mean, if there's anything uh, you know, I believe and I know Peterson believes very, very strongly. Like it's, it's just, there's really no point unless you're, there's really no point in doing anything unless you're, you're doing it for, for some, something
0: greater than yourself. What's the first step for something like that, or can you remember this first step that you took to transition? You know,
1: I, I think I think there is there is a lot of there's a certain amount of inner work that kind of has to happen first, a certain amount of um, dealing with you know your own uh, pain and beliefs and, and emotions. You know, I, I had to reach a certain level of like emotional maturity to, you know, and that's not to say that everybody who feels this way is emotionally immature. Like people have different levels of needs, but like for me, it was, I was carrying around a lot of resentment and, um, and I, I, there was also a lot of, like, I took a lot of pride in being, being able to like do things on my own. You know, the fact that I could pick up and go to another country for like three months and not tell a soul and people are like oh my god how did you do that like that's terrifying you know it's like there was a pride that i could do that you know but it's after a certain amount of time you start to realize that stuff like that is it's kind of silly it's ego based you know and so it's silly and um at some point you just kind of have to get over yourself and realize that um it's i think i think as as you get older or at least as i got older you 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 gain enough perspective to be able to look back and see like, wow, the five years I, I dedicated to that one thing does not feel important to me anymore. Yet, wow, I really I really miss my friends I haven't talked to in five years, you know? <laughs> and, then, and then it starts like sinking in.
0: Might be something to this. Right, next one, next one. You're <laughs> overthinking it because you assume you're more special than others.
1: <laughs> um. Now I I will add a caveat to that. See this is the problem with social media is and this you always get in trouble with this on social media cuz it's you try it like social media is optimized for pithiness,
0: narrow uh, bandwidth thing.
1: Eh? Yeah, and uh you know it is it, it, when you compress things like that, obviously you you start losing accuracy. Um, so stuff like this I'll always get in trouble because people will reply well, those. Well, it's not the only reason you overthink things." Well, yeah, you're right. It's not the only reason you overthink things, but, but often it's, um, it's a reason you, you overthink things. Um, you know, I, I think there's, there's something anxiety itself. Uh, and I am and trying to think of a way to say this. That's not going to sound absolutely horrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a fundamental selfishness that kind of comes attached with anxiety um because when you're anxious it very much and it's involuntary it's not it's not that you're a bad person or that you are a selfish person but it's there's an involuntary kind of selfishness that comes packaged with anxiety and that you become overly preoccupied with yourself and you know, it's, it's this, you kind of become obsessed with like, Oh, what does he think about me? Or did the thing I say was that stupid? Or, um, am I going to be a failure or is anybody ever going to like me? And it's, it's always me, 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 I, 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 I. And, um, it, there's a real kind of just, you know, I found, you know, kind of dealing with some of my own social anxiety in the past. Um, there There's a really profound effect of of if you're able to like invert that focus um and and kind of turn it more into to compassion or empathy for others, start worrying about like wondering what they're worried about you know it's like if you're if you're like the anxious mess in a crowded room uh who doesn't know anybody like maybe look around and wonder like it, you know is it other people are likely feeling similar things. Um, and it's just that, that simple ability to kind of step outside of yourself is often alleviates, um, you know, it removes that sense of specialness. It removes that, like, I'm the only one who feels this way. I'm the only one suffering this way. I'm the only one who understands what it's like, um, and you start realizing that everybody else like, has very similar problems or is thinking very similar things or worried about similar things. Um, you, you no longer feel alone in that suffering.
0: Well, the common thought raiser is if you have a thought, assume that at least some other significant minority of people also have it. But the way that our emotions feel, right, they're like, they're like bestowed on us. Like curses, individual (laughs) diseases that have just been given purely to us by some higher power. And this is why when you actually think about how emotions feel, almost all of the stories that kind of ancient religions spoke about, you know, thinking about how the goddess of lust and, and envy and anger and stuff like that. Like, of course, it makes sense because it feels like it's so much more. The phenomenon of having an emotion is so much more than just the wiring going on in your brain. Yeah. And that leads us to have that kind of very self-focused neurotic uh, view of the world, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, because if you generally, if you look at all the negative emotions, the negative emotions are very self-focused, you know, so anger is always like this horror, you know, I'm, I need to, you know, I need to. This horrible thing happened to me, and now I'm angry. You know, anxiety is this horrible thing's going to happen to me. Guilt is this horrible happen, thing happened to me in the past. Um, whereas, if you look at positive emotions, it's it's very out, outwardly focused. It's very much, you know, happiness or joy. It's 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 kind of this like gratitude for the place you're in, the people you're with, the the experiences you had. Um, And I I don't think that's a a coincidence. So I think that that's, you know, there's a fundamental connection between those two psychological phenomenon. And it's probably not not expressed super well in a in a pithy tweet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, next one. Uh, The more we seek change, the more meaningless that change becomes. I didn't understand this one.
1: Yeah, this one didn't go. This one didn't go over so well. This was one of those ones that I looked at afterwards, and I'm like, ah, yeah, I probably could explain this better. Um, Now's your chance. You know, I I would say change isn't the right word. I think novelty is the right word. Um, I was trying to kind of make a point about thrill seeking or novelty seeking. You know, it's it's there's a diminishing returns to novelty seeking. You know, it's like. The 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 example I always use is like the f- the first time you go to a foreign country, it's like a huge not like life changing experience. Um, even like the tenth foreign country you go to is like a very exciting experience. But, uh, you know, country number sixty two is kind of like oh okay sure whatever. Um, you 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 require generally anything that drives kind of a sense of novelty or excitement requires like greater and greater quantities of that experience to um to kind of get the same the same feeling you know whether that's travel or cocaine or sexual partners or money you know whatever it is social book sales social media followers, you know it's like whatever it is whatever that that dopamine hit is um there's always a diminishing returns to it. So, it, so it, they, they make for poor long-term
0: strategies. The hedonic treadmill is a hell of a drug, man. Absolute hell of yeah. a drug. Uh, right. <laughs> to deny negative emotions is to ignore useful feedback from the world. So I wanted to ask how much we should notice our negative emotions if they're good teachers, because Buddhism would instruct us to not identify with them. And some of the good elements of Stoicism, which I know you have criticisms of, would also suggest detachment, don't fixate or suppress, you know. Um, How can you avoid denying negative emotions to acquire the lessons from them, but then also not identify with them too much? That seems like a little bit of an oxymoron. Yeah.
1: I mean, I I definitely subscribe to kind of the Buddhism slash Stoicism school thought of like, notice emotions but don't don't be dictated by them um, and I I think it's you know one, one of the things I'm highly critical of uh you know kind of the whole positive thinking self-help genre sub is is that it, it's it often gets interpreted by people as as a, like a simple denial of negativity you know it's like pretending like everything's great you know it's like the dog in the in the burning house like this is fine (laughs) Uh,
0: i love that meme there's so (laughs) many uses for it it's
1: endlessly useful it is um you know so so the goal is is to not deny you know i people generally have two problems around negative emotions is either they they deny it in the first place or they indulge it they kind of live in it you know so um, they, they experience their fear or they experience their anger, but they like latch onto it and don't let it go. Um, and so the trick is to be open to it, but also part of being open is to let it leave when once it's ready to leave. But I, I generally, you know, the, the argument I always use for, for kind of the de- denier positive thinking crowd is I always, I, I say like negative emotions, like they, they evolve for a reason, like they, they have survival purposes. Um. You know, and so if you don't, like, if you train yourself to never be afraid of anything, like, you're going you, you to put yourself in some pretty dangerous situations pretty quickly.
0: Right, next one. Just because you're contrarian doesn't mean you're smart. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love this one. I, I mean... I was probably, I was probably a little bit bitter on Twitter when I wrote this one. (laughs) It's just like all these contrarian (laughs) assholes thinking they're so much smarter than everybody else. Um, you know, speaking of McConaughey, like McConaughey had a, uh, one of the parts I really liked about McConaughey's book is he had this whole section where he was talking about how like you need to know the rules before you can break the rules. Um, which you know, I when I was young, I was that I was that guy who just broke every rule. I'm like, rules are stupid. I'm gonna break every single one. And um, you quickly realize that rules exist for a reason. And I think the same thing can be said for institutions. It can be said for cultural norms. Um, it can be said for uh, you know manners or language. Like these things, they, they evolve and they exist for a reason. And so if you're going to break them, you need to have a good reason. It doesn't mean they're always right, but like the default assumption should be that they're right. It should The default assumption should not be that they're not right. Um, and so it's, it's correct until proven wrong, not the other way around.
0: Well, I mean, how much are we seeing this with the current debate over the COVID vaccine? Like, yeah, I mean, the most, the, apparently the smartest people on the internet are the ones that have this super secret gate kept knowledge with regards to the COVID vaccine. And you think 50% of Americans have had their first dose and 66% of British citizens have had their first dose. Uh, here's a thing that I found out, which is fucking brilliant, man. Only 20% of the UK population is on Twitter. So even yeah. when you think, well, everybody thinks this even if you were to max out everyone on twitter to get agreement you've only got 20 percent of the uk population what the fuck
1: yeah yeah i i I actually just wrote an article about social media uh, a couple weeks ago and i talked about this like it's really fascinating when they analyze social networks they tend to find kind of the same distribution um of users and they call it the the one nine90 rule, which is basically one percent of the users generate ninety percent of the content, nine percent of the users generate 10 percent of the content, and then ninety percent of the users generate basically no content whatsoever. Like they're just they're observers. And if you ask yourself, like, okay, who are the one percent generating the ninety percent of content? Like it's a large percentage of those people are the fucking crackpots and <laughs> nutcases, you know, and trolls. And it's, um, you know, it's one of the, one of the big take home points in that article was like, like everybody needs to learn that social media is not reality. Social, I call it like social media is a funhouse mirror of reality. It reflects reality, but it's different parts are elongated and exaggerated and other parts are kind of minimized. And, you know, so it's, and, and I, I think it's we're not especially kind of people in the media um, or people who read a lot of news or trap you know follow the media very closely like we, a lot of people have not figured that out yet like this is not um, it's not reality it's it's a it's a really skewed version of it but yeah I mean wh- coming from being like an online brand or whatever myself you know one thing I learned very early on in my early on in my career it's like, if you want clicks, like just be contrarian. Like, you know, it's like I, it's kind of how I got my start as a blogger. Like I, I write an article called like, you know, you are not special. And sure enough, it would get a shitload of clicks. And I'd write another one saying like, you know, fuck positive thinking, get a ton of clicks. (laughs) Um, you know, so it's disagreeing with something or tearing something down is a great way to get attention. Like our, our you know, coming back to the human perception thing, like we are very biased to notice flaws and negativity much more easily or like give it more attention or more importance than um, things that are functioning correctly. Um, And and the fact of the matter is, is like, if you want to find individual flaws or failures or inaccuracies in pretty much every institution in the world, like you can find plenty of them. They're run by humans. So like, of course you're going to find plenty of them. But that doesn't mean we need to like overthrow the world order or like take down the government take down the CDC or the FDA or like destroy the the Fed like all this shit that people this like re, like legit revolutionary conclusions that these people are coming to um, is is a disproportionate response to to the actual flaws in the system that they're exposed to
0: yeah it needs to be iteration I think There's this Donald Nuth quote, which I always come back to, and he says, tradition is a set of solutions for which we have forgotten the problems. Yes, for sure. And you just think if it's that fence in a field analogy, um, which now actually I don't think works. You know, There's a fence in a field and a liberal goes up to it and says, we just need to tear this down. The conservative goes, well, hang on a second. We don't know why it's there. It It might function, might have a purpose. I don't think that that divide occurs anymore. I think that yeah. both groups are now looking for revolution by by any means. I don't actually know who is pro-institution anymore. Both sides have problems with the same things for completely opposing reasons, but the solution is the same. Tear it down. It all needs to fuck off. Um, yeah. yeah, it's an interesting like thing.
1: It's like, it's like the right's like, let's take a chainsaw to it. And the left is like, fuck chainsaws, let's blow it up. Nuclear you know? bomb, like, yeah, no, precisely. <laughs> you know, and they're just arguing. They're like, chainsaws, bomb, chainsaws. But uh, the, but the funny thing is is like this comes back to like the social media not being reality it's like th- there's a silent majority of people who do believe in the institutions they're just not on fucking twitter like no. they're taking care of their kids they're going well, to no, work. There's, even the they're silent
0: like, majority on twitter probably also does as well yes. and then yeah yeah fuck, man right okay 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 next one next one um <laughs> the secret to success is pain tolerance do you not think that success can be easy then
1: no no if it was easy then everybody would have it then it wouldn't be success um because success is by definition something that is is uh um you know on the extreme uh fuck what's the word i'm looking for um it's something that that that's you know extraordinary means something that is not ordinary it's like beyond ordinariness so it, it if you're getting the same result everybody else got then it's not
0: not success it's not mm. uh, and i suppose that the success is a function of the discomfort to get there as well right the satisfaction of getting to a higher mountain is greater than that of getting to a smaller mountain because of the challenge that it took you to get to the top
1: absolutely i mean it's people like like if you went and climbed mount everest and i went and climbed like whatever shitty hill is in upstate new york like you know who's who's gonna be more impressed (laughs) it's 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 just it's just how it works
0: (laughs) right this one this one i really like the only way to become truly confident in yourself is to be comfortable with what you lack yep yeah
1: confidence is not hiding what we lack it's not even and it's not even exposing what we have it's 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 a comfort in a calmness about our shortcomings and failings because we all got them it's just it's our relationship to them that kind of determines
0: our our mental health i was speaking to a special forces operative british one and he was talking about how all of the guys use quite uh, morbid humor to get past these scary situations and it's this pressure release valve because all of them are shitting themselves all of them are scared it's like if you don't think that we're scared you're wrong but we just have ways of coping with it and most of them coped with it by making jokes about stuff by laughing by laughing about stuff one guy got a shot like a, a single pellet from a shotgun or something went through the meat of his ass cheek and all of them couldn't stop laughing about it (laughs) And (laughs) like this guy's got to have like he's off work for he's off the like off the unit for God knows how long and he's got to have stitches and all of these operations to get it fixed, and he was laughing and so was everyone else.
1: (laughs) Yeah, man, gallows humor.
0: Yeah, but it's it's you're right as well that confidence from most people isn't due to a uh, presumed lack of capacity; it's due to an uh, exaggerated. Um, presence of insufficiency, yeah, and yeah, embracing that is the solution.
1: Yeah, and I I think it's it's easy to mistake, um, you know, there there's a lot of people in the world compensate for their their lack or their flaws by overly boasting about their successes or or their positive traits, and um, and I think people people wrongly attribute that to confidence you know if somebody's like i'm the best so-and-so ever i'm the best mountain climber ever like man that guy's confident it's like no it's actually quite the opposite you know it's it's he has to say that or else he doesn't feel comfortable actually going and doing it you know if he was confident he wouldn't have to say it it's like a you know where i grew up we have a group in texas we have a lot of corny southern sayings and one of them is uh the the smallest dog barks the loudest and um it's like, yeah, if if you've gotta if you gotta tell everybody you're rich, you're not rich. Like, you gotta tell somebody if you've gotta tell everybody how smart you are, you're not smart.
0: You know, you either are or you won't or you aren't. Right, we're into the meat of it now. This is this is my favorite section. So if all your relationships have the same problem, you are the problem. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um how did this one go it's down? funny.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you know, it's funny. So this was originally, I wrote a short article. Um, I wrote a short article. I think in like 2012 or 13, and it was called. Uh, it was called like all the reasons you're S- you're still single, and um, <laughs> <laughs> and I published it on Valentine's Day, and uh, you know, I just got like a sick pleasure out of that you know it basically said it was like look all these problems you think all your partners have or all the people you date have like guess what you know the only thing they have in common is you common denominator um but i i repost that probably about once a year in different places
0: and different On forms. valentine's day and... just let's schedule it every <laughs> february 14th from now until the end of time
1: <laughs> i i had a pretty sick thing going on my blog with valentine's day for a while like like i did that one year and then i think the next year i did like a how to break up with somebody like guide on Valentine's Day (laughs) I did like a bunch of like kind of fucked up uh, you know dark humor type things but um yeah I repost that one quite frequently because um, I mean I always get a lot of people get mad at me when I post it a lot of you know because everybody's got that
0: well you don't understand my ex is different you know Well, all four of them have my... the exact same problem that you <laughs> you happen to be the single thread but they don't know each other they're not even in the same city and yet they all ended yeah. in the same way but it's all their fault not yours yeah mm, Okay. It, it's it's always I'm always uh you know I so
1: I get lots and lots of emails over the years and and i'm always amused that the people who get really upset at my relationship advice they're they always send emails like this long and it's always like well you don't understand my situation is different and then they go on to tell this like you know five stage five page sob story about you know god knows what the And in every, in every case, it's, it's exactly the same. It's like, no, you're, you're still the problem. You're just, you know, um, but yeah, it's also, I keep posting it because it it is such a powerful realization. Um, it was very powerful in my own life. Uh, and I've, you know, just heard from hundreds of people at this point who told me the same thing, that it was very powerful for them to hear as well. So I, I'm willing to deal with a little bit of hate, um, (laughs) to get the good word out.
0: Doing God's work. Uh, right. Lots exactly. of people who are still single, but want a relationship simply have absurd expectations. Yes.
1: I, I think one of the problems with, uh, I mean, look, like I think one of the side effects of, of the internet, like kind of the effects that the internet has, has had on culture is that it's exposed us to the most extraordinary aspects of society, you know? So it's, If you're interested in, uh, you know, mountain climbing, you can like go on YouTube and find amazing videos of people summiting Everest, like left, right, and center. And so I I feel like this is without us realizing it, it has skewed our expectations for our own lives. Um, it's kind of like moved the goal back about 50 yards. Um, from where it would normally be without us necessarily even recognizing it. And I think this applies to dating as well. It's like you, you, because you have access to so many people through dating apps or online or, or whatever, um, you, you start developing these kind of unrealistic standards of what a partner should be. You know, people develop these insane checklists of, you know, well, they, they need to be like, they need to be a concert pianist and they need to have a PhD and they need to be a part-time model and they need to speak six languages and you know, it's like, good luck, man. Like (laughs) good luck. Uh, So I, I I just, I think sometimes we need to be brought down to earth.
0: I wonder whether as well, part of it is just that we, we constantly are looking for something that's going to fill the hole. And perhaps by setting our standards so absurdly high, we never actually have to enter the world of a relationship with people. Also, here's another thing, man. How much do you think this is because we live in a meritocracy? Like if you teach people that they can become anything that they want to be, your success is completely yours to bear. Why shouldn't everyone want to try and date Angelina Jolie? Well, I can become anything I want to be. I can date anyone I want to want.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's, there. there's kind of a missing counter narrative to meritocracy or, or not counter, but like a kind of a parallel narrative that needs to exist where it's like at some point you need to, to like pick your spot to be satisfied.
0: <laughs> What's the hill that like you're going to you get married on? Yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly, exactly. Like it, it's, and, and this comes back to what we were talking about earlier about like this, this kind of unwillingness. To sacrifice and commit for others, like it's the thing that makes a relationship strong, is the ability to be like, okay, I see what's wrong with you, but I'm gonna love you anyways. Like that, like getting to that point is what makes the relationship work. Um, but I just think, like fundamentally, the way the incentives and culture is set up right now, it's like it's it's harder than ever for people to get to that point.
0: Yeah, you classed yourself as an ardent zealot of marriage. Um, have you got any advice for young guys who want to kind of transition from fuck boy to fatherhood?
1: (laughs) From fuck boy to fatherhood.
0: It'd be a good book title. It would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs)
1: Um, well, I do want to say I'm not, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a zealot for marriage, but like I, I think it's underrated these days and I think there's not enough, um, People arguing for it, especially especially in my generation. Um I would say that you know, to make that transition, it's kind of the best piece of advice I've come across is is asking people, you know, because when you're dating a lot of people, part of the excitement is there's so much a diversity of dating experience. Like you you date people of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different nationalities different professions, all this stuff. Like it's a very exciting time to kind of like sample the buffet of what's out there. Um, but at a certain point, like when you want to get serious, the thing I always ask people is I say like, okay, what are your three non-negotiables? Like, what are the three things that like you just cannot be with a person if they don't have them? And it's, I've noticed that people who really struggle to name those three things, like they're kind of just like kind of lost on this hamster wheel of dating the next person who pops up on Tinder. Um, but like you really need to figure out like what are your non-negotiables? What are the things that you really can't live without of without in a partner? Um, and then figure out if those are good non-negotiables. You know, there are bad things you can kind of put in those three spots. But generally it's going to be stuff like, you know, honesty or trustworthiness. Um, you know, for me, intelligence is huge. Like, I, I need to be able to have like a good conversation. Um, you know, and and for me too, it's it's ambition. I just find I'm ex- very very attracted to ambitious women. I, I don't. I always get frustrated. You know, whenever I dated women who weren't super ambitious, I'd get very frustrated. So it's like part of it's just learning through the act of dating. But then once you have them you look for those non-negotiables and then you just don't worry about the other things. Cause it's, I think part of the trap of the dating environment these days is like, you know, it's like, well, she's really great at these four or five things, but you know, she's got pointy elbows and <laughs> I prefer redheads and you know, she's from California and I don't want to travel to meet her family. You know, like it's shit like that, that people like, you know, move on from potentially really good relationships, and so it's like, get your three non-negotiables, and then just fucking forget everything else. Like, just just look for those three things.
0: What do you think people should stop believing about relationships? Are there any sort of common myths that you think most people hold? Um, I think people mistake.
1: Uh, I think people mistake compromise for settling. Um, you know, there's, there's a strong, I've noticed that a lot of people, especially younger people have this strong, like ethos of like, I'm never going to settle. Like I'm not going to settle for somebody who like doesn't make me happy or whatever. Um, and that's fine. Like you shouldn't settle for a person who, you know, has a, like somebody you're not attracted to, for instance. Um, but at the same time, it's like any functional relationship requires compromise and compromise requires you foregoing some of your own happiness to create, you know, more general happiness in the, it, among both of you in the long run. And, um, and I think a lot of people just mix up those two things. You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who, who have ended relationships for like, in my mind, it's just like insanely dumb reasons, you know? Um, like oh well she wanted to move you know her uh, her company wanted to move her to another city and I don't want to deal with that and it's like well dude you like a month ago you were telling me how in love you were like <laughs> he's like yeah but I don't want to settle for somebody who like it's just like they're not even it's like yeah she wants me to travel there every two months or something you know and it's like I don't have time for that it's it's like okay this is why you're single you're literally not prioritizing. <laughs> you wonder why you're single decade after decade it's because you don't fucking prioritize your relationships <laughs> it's really simple
0: <laughs> well, i mean think about it man there's even there's even um subcultures and, and lingo around what people should and shouldn't do when they get that kind of pushback in a relationship for, so for girls it's like clapping back right or for guys it's not being a simp or not being a cook or not being like a like a, a soy boy or whatever like not being weak and um, you sure. think like if both of these things are happening, because they're coming at it, these are two very, very polar, uh, polarized types of um, approaches to relationships. Men want sexual variety, women want sort of commitment. And um, somehow both of them have arrived at like the same conclusion. It's the same as the left and right thing that we were talking about before. And the thing that I can only think about is that one of the things perhaps is an increasing ubiquitousness of uh, people being exposed to perfect seeming relationships on social media in press so on and so forth and in romance movies one of the few places that kind of um the the cancel culture mob hasn't yet gotten to is that most relationships should finish with a happy ending like and she built her business and made a, a billion dollars and lived happily ever after like that's not really usually the way that the story ends. Um, Sure. So I'm wondering whether or not people, again, the unrealistic expectations thing that we're talking about and kind of this, yeah, this conflation that um, anything shy of absolutely perfect is you being taken for a ride.
1: Yeah. Well, it's so there people have always, and this is true of men and women, but you know, in the dating realm, men and women tend, you see the same patterns, but it plays out with different language and different, uh, it's expressed with different language, but like everything you just listed, I mean, it's basically seeing relationships as a power game. And um, one thing I've written before is that like the definition of unhealthy relationship is when people see it as a power, like people perceive the relationship to be a power struggle. It's always like who is, has more influence, who is getting their way more than the other person who is getting what they want from the other person. Any relationship, romantic friendship business relationship any relationship you you approach as a power game as like a zero-sum power game it's by definition toxic it's going to harm your life it's going to harm the other person's life even if you're winning that power game it's going to harm your life and it's going to harm the other person's life um a healthy relationship is the way i describe it is 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 both people act unconditionally which is basically like Look, like we're equals. We both want to be happy. We both want the other person to be happy. So, what do we need to do to make that happen? And sometimes that might might mean, you know, in the case like my wife and I, maybe that means like maybe a couple times it means I give up something or I don't do something. A couple times it means she gives up something, she doesn't do something. Like there's there's no scorecard here. Like there's no we're not. Keeping a tally in the It's bedroom. not a transaction. Like,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, we're not we're not like adding up who gave up more when or whatever. It's like you know maybe one if she's having a tough year, maybe I give up more that year. If if I'm having a tough year in five years, she gives up more that year. Like it's that you you don't you don't ask those questions or, or try to count those things because it's the act of counting itself that undermines the relationship. Um, and it's funny, too, because a lot of the dating advice industry, both for men and for women, focuses on that scorecard. It's like, you know, there's, there was a book in the 90s called The Rules, which was all about it was teaching women, you know, stuff like don't pick up the phone the first time he calls or, um, you know, get up and go to the bathroom when the check comes or something to make him pay it, like stuff like that. Um and it's basically teaching women how to how to tally it like win more points on the scorecard, but it doesn't realize it's teaching them a, to have toxic relationships with people and it's the same thing with the game in two thousand and five with the whole pickup artist thing it's the exact same it was teaching men how to win the, at the scorecard and look at and fucking like, all right look
0: look at Neil strauss now yeah
1: <laughs> look at look at <laughs> i mean go, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> i mean it's and the thing is I mean Neil made it out better than most of those guys like it's it's I mean, talk about train wreck on top of train wreck. Um, so it's, and I, you know, I was part of that world when I was young and it took me a couple of years, but I soon figured out, I'm like, man, this is not going to end well. Like, <laughs> sure. I'm getting laid a lot, but like, this is not like, it's not making me happy. It's not, it's not making, you know, the women I'm, I'm hooking up with are not happy people. Like, um, this is, uh, th- this is a dead end
0: i need to find a different road that's the ultimate red pill about up artistry and kind of the whole meninism movement at large and then there has to be a, a an equivalent for women i just don't know what it's called um yeah. and this is why your first book models is I- i've just completed yes everyone that's listening i've just finished the reading list today so there's 100 books uh, and <laughs> <laughs> it's taken me fucking ages man it took so long um and the only book The only book that's specifically about dating and pick-up on there is Models. And the fundamental reason is that pick-up artistry and the female equivalent of it is teaching you tactics to appear like an attractive mate. But it doesn't make you an attractive mate. Like It's the same as going to a powerlifting competition and wearing a secret mechanical exoskeleton that allows you to pick the weight up you win, you get the gold medal, but you're still not that strong. And if anyone asks you to replicate that again, you can't do it without all of the tactics that you have. And I think pick-up artistry as well actually causes a lot of men to lose confidence because what they see is the chasm between what the girl is attracted to in this caricature, the alter, alter ego that they've created for themselves, and who they actually think that they are in this gap. Yeah. the the um delta between those two is fucking huge yeah
1: i mean it's obviously it objectifies women you know you when you treat them as objects to be manipulated by using lines and stories and whatever um you're objectifying them which is bad for them um but what men don't realize is is that they're objectifying themselves as well so it's it's they're choosing to ignore who they really are, what they really want, what they really believe in, what they're really attracted to, and instead adopting a fake persona, adopting scripted lines, a scripted identity essentially, kind of like downloading an identity onto themselves um, to just get this, to get a, a, a you know, real world result, to get, like, to get laid a few times. <laughs> First of all, not only does it make the sex horrible, because because first of all it it only attracts women who are also hiding their real selves who are also don't have the confidence to to show up authentically um who don't who have low self-esteem and are very needy um so it it brings two emotionally unhealthy people together to kind of do this performance where at least for the pickup artist like the, the the goal is sex um but because sex is such a vulnerable and intimate experience, um, it's really unenjoyable. Like ninety nine percent of the super time, super performative. And it, yeah, and it's and so it's just you. You get the little ego boost. You're like, oh, okay, I got laid now. Um, but yeah, I think in the long run, it it makes guys feel very empty um, and feel very lost. Um, and so, so my book Models was very much written. I wrote it specifically to kind of to be like the antidote to that. Um, you know, I, I had spent some time in that community and then I kind of got out, but I still coached men's, gave men's dating advice, still coached men. Um, and I, I just started to realize like, you know, most of these guys, like their, their problem is not that they don't know what to text a girl or that they don't know where to take her on a date. You know, like that's not the problem. The problem is like, they fucking, they, they don't believe in themselves. Like they don't, they don't stand for anything they don't have an identity like they don't they don't have social skills like it's you know deal with these fundamental things first and and the dating stuff will just take care of itself and so models was very much like a i felt like there was not an emotionally healthy uh guide to men's dating in the world and so i wanted the right one that would help men but also um do it in a way that like they, they don't have to, like, sacrifice their self-worth.
0: Is there anything that you change from it or that you think you missed? Looking back now, whatever, seven years later on, are you thinking, ah, oh, that would be awesome to add that in?
1: Um, I revised it twice. So I revised it once in – so it came out 2011. I revised it in 2012, and most of that revision was kind of just <laughs> making it – getting rid of typos, like making it a little bit professional because um, it was – It was in rough shape when I first released it, and then when I revised it again in 2016, um, I was actually pleasantly surprised that like probably 95% of it I still stood by and felt really good about. Um, The one, the revision in 2016, I I kind of updated it because the original version was slanted. You know, I wrote it when I was like 26, so it was still slanted more towards like being a single guy going out and partying, hooking up. Um, I wanted, I wanted it to be kind of relationship neutral, you know? So it's like, if you just want to get laid, that's fine. If you want to ha- like get married, that's also fine. So I, I revised it to kind of, you know, speak to, to everybody. Um, and then the other thing, the, the thing that really surprised me, but models developed a a real following among, um, among women and among LGBT people and, um, and so I, I kind of edited there, you know, there were little like simple examples or lines and stuff here and there that I, I kind of edited just to like be applicable to a broader audience. Because the, the central concepts of the book are universal. Like the the things that make ultimately drive human relationships and make people happy in human relationships and turn people on are, are pretty universal. It they're just expressed slightly differently. Um based on gender and then they're expressed slightly differently based on sexual orientation and so i I wanted to just make the book even though it's written for men i wanted to make it as universal as possible
0: got you right what do you think people are giving too many fucks about that they shouldn't (laughs)
1: uh whatever's being posted on twitter (laughs) fine fine that is (laughs) i think that can get
0: universal agreement from everybody
1: yeah period (laughs) yeah full stop
0: man thank you so much for coming on uh this will just will uh yep. november 9th and yep. um dude i'm so i'm so gassed for that awesome like really re- what a cool project to have worked on and um yeah i can't wait for that to come out yeah me too man Well, look dude markmanson.net for all yep. things you uh models and subtle art and everything else will be linked in the show notes below if everyone wants to check that out. And what are your socials? People want to follow you on there. Uh,
1: Twitter is I am Mark Manson. Uh, Instagram is just Mark Manson. Um, and then I think Facebook's manson Net. Does, everyone, um, does anyone use anyone Facebook. use Facebook anymore? No, nobody uses Facebook anymore. But um, old people use Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I'm also on. I'm also. I have a YouTube channel now as well. So I, I do. Um, I do a few videos each month. so check that out
0: brother thank you so much thank you man it was fun